You're listening to Tom's Talk Time, a podcast where real people sit down to tell their real stories. It's Tom's Talk Time with your host, Tom Marlowe. People say your life flashes before your eyes, and I thought that was shit. I thought that was horse shit until I was hanging. I have no idea how long I was hanging. And I, was just, I must have been just squirming and choking, like fighting, fighting for breath. And I just remember seeing my daughter like holding her mum's hand and it must have been like first day of school or something but I remember her thinking or looking at her thinking holy shit she's not going to have a dad's hand to hold ever. Hello and welcome to another episode of Tom's Talk Time. Thanks for tuning in. Joining me today is a man called Lachlan Samuel. In this episode, Lachlan shares with me his story of moving away from a life of drugs and negativity in New Zealand to starting life in Western Australia as a fly-in, fly-out worker. It was good money for a young man, but it quickly turned into a struggle. His relationships began to deteriorate and his ex-girlfriend eventually revealed she was pregnant with his baby and he didn't accept it. His life quickly spiralled out of control into debt and depression, and after his baby was born, he tried to take his own life. It was what he saw next that changed him. He saw his life quickly flash before his eyes, and his daughter growing up without a dad. Lachlan is turning his life around. He now hosts his own podcast and inspires other people, particularly men, to open up about their problems. This podcast does contain adults' content, so it's one to put some headphones in if you're around little kids. And if this episode triggers any issues for you, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Here's Lachlan. I grew up in South Auckland, so that's in New Zealand. It's the more poverty-stricken part, like got the highest crime rate in the country. So I guess poverty forces people to go into lives of crime just to survive and that's the sort of town I grew up in. I grew up with a detective senior sergeant as a father so I was just around that all the time, around being threatened because of my dad and him starting Homicide Squad. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's all right. I know it can be a little bit difficult recounting things. Did you grow up with siblings? Yeah, I had. I've got three older siblings so they're like 40 and they pretty much looked after me when I was little when mum was working what dad was working he was always off chasing murderers and rapists so he wasn't home too much I've got a little brother fought a lot childhood was relatively loving like full of love were raised well raised with good morals for the most part not that I took them all on but we were raised well I can't complain about my childhood what was it like having a dad in, in that line of work when obviously it's um it's two very different worlds when he's out at work and then when he's coming home? Did he find it difficult to switch between the two? If he was at home, then he was outside in the garage and we didn't understand. He was just like jacked, buff as hell and we just didn't understand that. It was like, bro, come inside, look. Come inside and watch TV with us. But he was just always out there and I don't think it's until I look back now I can realise damn that dude was dealing with some shit like turning up to like murders where people were chopped up or dragged along the freeway behind a car and just he had to deal with that and then go out and catch the people who did it so 
I can't imagine the mental strain he would have been under as well as like not be able to talk about it at home. Back then it was a very different time as well probably. There's much more support I'd say for yeah, officers well, and things now. I interviewed him a couple of weeks ago and he talks about if you showed any emotion or weakness then you're pretty much cast out of homicide squad and CIB. <laughs> wow, that yeah, <laughs> that is very tough. So then, tell me about your move to Australia. How did that all come about? Um, for the most part, I think I was running away from the person I was. <laughs> that just come up because my older brother moved from Melbourne to Kalgoorlie. It's like, dude, you can make a shitload of money here, um, and yeah, we can just come over. You come over, have fun. We can drink a lot, go to the gym, and just rack our savings in pretty much a week after he, after he texted me that I, I booked a ticket I had a girlfriend of about six years at the time she didn't like that <laughs> and I just took off man and how old were you uh, 19 19 so yeah. I mean that's quite young yeah young and dumb <laughs> what did your parents say when you told them that you would be leaving they were stoked they were stoked because I've, I've always been someone who's gone out and got my own work and they were just stoked that I was gonna. I was making a decision based on putting my future first, rather than what I was doing, which was Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, on the Ekkies, on the MDMA. Um, at that point, I was using ecstasy and MDMA to like get up as like a coffee. So I was using it just to get pie every day, and they were stoked that I was getting away from it. Often that. For people that are addicted to drugs, just getting away is not really an option. When your brother offered you that lifeline, why do you think you took it? Why did you leave and and want to get out of there? Well, it wasn't actually... I don't think it was that I was running away from, but, like, I knew that wasn't good. Not just because of the money that I had to spend on it, but because I was bringing it into the home. I was selling it as well my dad who's big time in New Zealand police um, I just wanted to get away from the trouble it caused but I think mostly what what you do when you're taking drugs and the person you become especially when it's hard for me to say I was addicted because I've never admitted that but looking back yeah Jesus I was addicted I wanted to get away from the person I'd become which was unfaithful and you know untrustworthy so when you you came to Kalgoorlie to see your brother you obviously uh, organized the job in FIFO yeah uh, doing fly in fly out so what was that like stepping into that it was awesome it was amazing like coming over from an apprentice wage working 60 hours a week for 400 dollars to like now making 2500 dollars a week straight away straight off the bat as a 19 year old damn like it was awesome and the camaraderie you have especially when you're kiwi working as a scaffolder it's just brotherhood man you go to work together um finish work go to the pub together go to the gym go eat dinner together wake up have breakfast repeat do it all again (laughs) yeah man and so how long were your swings each time i started off doing like two-week swings and shutdowns, and shutdowns pretty much just whenever they need you, you turn up. So you're on call all the time. 
it's a, a really interesting way to work as well because when you're doing those two week swings, you are on all the time, aren't you? Like you're you're yeah. there to work and work yeah, hard. Yeah, it's pretty much twelve twelve to fourteen hour days um, every day for the whole two weeks. So fourteen days, twelve hours, twelve to fourteen, dependent on how the work was going. Like you, your view of normality becomes distorted. Because you get a lot of money, you still get to drink, there's still girls on site, you're still able to play up and have fun with girls. There's a gym, so like everything everything is catered for. And like there's a buffet for breakfast and dinner. So you don't really need anything else, especially when you're young. Looking back, do you look at it as if you were living in a bubble? Very much so. Probably one that a lot of people too would never experience unless you've done it the everyday person doesn't really get to live like that. Yeah, exactly. And it's even worse if you've got problems at home. So if you've got a partner and you go out bush, you're taking all those problems and if you aren't equipped to deal with them, like you're just sitting in your room or just drinking with the boys and you can't talk about that shit with the boys. That was sort of going to be my next question of what was your personal situation at the time? Where were you based and where were you working? I was based in Kalgoorlie and we'd just drive all over the place, fly all over the place. To fast forward a little bit, like I found myself with a partner in Kalgoorlie. I ended up getting a job back at the, the site that I started at when I was in Kalgoorlie and that was five days on, two days off. So I was super lucky. Fly away on a Monday, fly back on a Friday and then, yeah, have the weekend with my partner. But that's still too much, having to say goodbye to the person you love every Monday morning is is hard, especially when you're home alone. It's not really real life, is it? You're not living with that partner in real life because you're there for the the fun times on the weekend and then you you just go on a Monday. Yeah, and even then it's, you sort of try too hard to make the most of it. And especially when it's really only Saturday that you can get stuff done, try and get everything done in the day and then you just drink or... You know, do whatever you want to do. Spend all your money you made during the week to make up for being away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's toxic, man. But you don't understand that while you're in it. So how long had you been with your partner before things started to get a little bit rocky? How long were you doing that for? Um, it started to get rocky probably around the three-year mark. But at that point, I'd moved from doing a five-and-two roster, five days on, two days off, to four-and-one, so four weeks, four weeks away one week back in Perth. Did you feel like at the time maybe you weren't aware of how much things were continuing to sort of work like normal back at home? You know, it's not a case of you going away and everything at home freezes. You know, her life kept going during those four weeks. Yeah, well, this is like, this is something I've never really expressed openly. I've never told anyone because of the fear of hurting people's perception of her, but I think it's fine to say now, now that I realise I'm the cause of it. <laughs> Even before I went away for one, she was in such a depressed state. Looking back now, I can understand that, but she was so depressed that she was saying, if you don't come home, I'm going to kill myself. And I was just like, nah, man, you just want me to leave the good money. You want me to leave my friends. Leave the boys. Yeah, it was just super distorted how I viewed a normal relationship. (laughs) And how old were you at this stage? Probably about 23. 
that's a lot of weight to have on your shoulders at yeah. that age. Yeah, and looking back now, I was probably depressed too. Because every day having to deal with someone telling you they're going to kill your, kill themselves because of you and because of your inaction and your selfishness, it's hard. But I wasn't equipped with the skills to deal with that mental strain, not just for me, but for her as well. Describe to me what uh, the environment is like when you are away. I'm assuming you probably can't express those types of feelings with the boys when you're up there. What's it like? I couldn't express how I felt, but I could say, like, look, this is what's happening. Have any of you gone through something similar? And luckily enough, one of the English boys up there had been through something, but the advice he gave probably <laughs> probably isn't something you, some advice that you should give to someone who's dealing with that situation. That was just, no, nah, fuck it, bro. Like She's just trying to make you stop. I've been through this. If she wants to do it, she'll do it. That was my viewpoint as well. So what was the final sort of straw where you decided that things were, were too much? How did it come to an end? Like fast forward back to the 4-in-1 roster. I'm doing that. It's becoming toxic. Like I'm away for four weeks. And she's still feeling like I need you at home. I'm lonely because we both had no family at all in the city. I was just in a world of my own. I was on steroids, loving the gym, um, enjoying the food, enjoying being with all my friends from Kalgoorlie. My older brother was there. Um, Her older brother was there. I was just loving life, man. And honestly, I had wandering eyes. I started like looking at someone else like, oh, man. You're really cool. I really would love to be with someone like you who makes me happy. Not realising that I was just being <laughs> a complete selfish bastard. And that's pretty much where it broke down because of me and how selfish I was in terms of needing to stay away for everything I loved instead of putting her first. How long had you been together by that stage? Probably about four years at that stage. It was drawn out maybe over... A year and a half, but I just didn't want to accept my responsibility, my role in it. I thought throughout that whole time I was playing the victim, like, man, she's trying to manipulate me into coming back. She's doing all this, so, I'd, so I'm not making good money, so I'm not FIFO. She wants me to work in town for for shit wage, but man, if you love someone, you got to put them first. <laughs> Yeah, you know that now, but you went your separate ways. And then am I right in thinking that she then told you that she was pregnant? Yes, so maybe three, four months after that all happened. So we split up and then I became so negative at work that I was completely useless. Just so useless that they said, sign this and resign or we're going to fire you. So I lost my job like making for three to three to four and a half grand a week as a 24-year-old and lost my identity as the high-earning FIFO worker, as the gym bunny. And yeah, and then a couple of months after that, she told me she was pregnant. What we'll, we'll get to the pregnancy in a minute, but what was that like for you when you'd come from New Zealand to kind of escape who you were becoming or had become? You'd started this life, it it had sort of carried on for a few years and you were someone quite different, but then someone came and just cut that completely and said, you know, you've had your chances. Did it feel like starting again? Yeah. I think that's what made me scared to really 
consider going back to be honest because feel like you're not good enough even though you know you didn't give your best effort and that's a reason why you got told to leave you just feel super unworthy and I've always felt super unworthy mm, That that's really tough going back to um, her telling you that she was pregnant what was your initial reaction to that? can I swear? honestly it was get fucked no you're not like straight again back into victim mode like you're trying to manipulate me nah no, I know you're pretending just so I come back to you. Dude, I was a mess. I was a fucked up man. She was obviously adamant that the baby was yours, so yeah, I'm assuming she told you, well, it's yours. Yeah, she did, and I was, I was consistent with my reply of, no, it's not for the next three, four, five months, which... You know, looking back now, I still can't forgive myself for the way I treated her. Did you tell anyone at the time, family or friends? I did. I was actually on holiday in New Zealand with a Canadian girl I met on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, and I had to tell her while we were on holiday and that was just kaput. That killed anything happening there. <laughs> and I think that's why I was being so selfish. Because I was like, look what you're doing to me. So you saw it as, as an end to what you were trying to do yeah, rather than what, what was actually going on. Nine months came up and, and she was ready to have the baby. What was your relationship like at that time? Had you accepted that it probably was yours? Yeah, I accepted. I went to, what are they called, a sonogram or something? I went to, I went to one of those with her and while they are doing the scan, like held her hand and when I seen seen my daughter in her tummy for the first time and when I heard the heartbeat I was just like oh shit you got me man you got me and so like from then I've been committed to my daughter but the relationship is very volatile um and I can totally understand that because I had a new partner at that time too so like her having my baby possibly still being in love with me I don't want to say she was and then having me falling for someone else, that's got to be hard. It's a lot to juggle as well when, you know, you're quite young. I mean, a baby for anyone is obviously a big life change, but when you add in the fact that you're not together and you've got a, a different partner, it makes it really hard. After your daughter was born, how did life continue then? How, how did things work out? Well, for the next three months, I was a big part of her life. I was like had this deluded idea that I could start a business, that I could run away from being everything I'd been in Australia, which was a FIFO worker, making good money, and that I could start a business with the savings I had to get ahead, still in the FIFO industry, but not not be one of the soldiers or one of the bloody slaves out on a construction site. And so I plotted along with that, going to pitch events, going to meetups, meeting, managing directors and stuff of mining companies and big business in Perth and that was really going well but then at the three month mark um, my daughter's mum took her to Sydney or Karatha, not really too sure where but took her away and I just fell in the hole again. (laughs) Was that an indication that she probably wasn't going to let her see you anymore? I didn't see the signs but yeah I didn't get to go over and see her wherever they were I didn't get too much contact with her to be honest 
Um, she needed to do it for her to get away from Perth because she hated the city. It reminded her of us. And like looking back now, I can totally understand from her viewpoint to be the best mum that she could be. It was a necessity. It was imperative for her to put herself first to raise our daughter well. But yeah, looking back, I can totally understand that. Like it was her turn to be selfish and take care of herself. You were plotting on with the business. Then that started to turn a little bit pear-shaped. So what happened there? To be honest, I just made stupid decisions. Like, I had no experience in the field I was going into, which was technology and mining technology. I just thought, oh, shit, I can talk to people, I can smile, I can convince people to give me money, sweet. And wasted a lot of money, bro. Wasted a lot of money. Just made stupid decisions, and that bombed. That bombed so bad I was in debt. So I was in a whole whole lot of trouble financially and like stupidly but optimistically I went and met a guy who was a charter vehicle, had a charter vehicle business, hired a car from him, went and did Uber Black so I could still meet like the most influential people in Perth. And I did, but I wasn't making enough money because I was broke. Broke as fuck. <laughs> when people often say money can't buy happiness but it is certainly very easy when you've got money to, to be able to do things. So describe to me what it was like. Like, did you struggle to, like, put food on the table and keep on top of bills and, and that sort of thing? Yeah, well, like, even though I was still working Uber Black, I was in such a financial hole that I couldn't pay my rent. I could pay my, like, my child support or a few of the bills that I'd incurred, but I couldn't pay everything, and so I was borrowing a lot of money from my parents I far up probably borrowed about five grand from my parents over the space of a month borrowed from my brother who was still working FIFO and eventually I ended up borrowing from people who I know were way worse off than I had been and had been worse off for like the last decade I felt pretty shit man What's it like having to ask someone that you know is worse off? That must be really difficult. I think the people who are worse off, who give money, they see that you're hurting and they offer. So I, I, don't, I didn't have to ask them. They just gave me the money and I took it. But yeah, I'm so selfish that I couldn't say no. You need money to do so many things and it's when it's not there and when every day is a struggle to keep on top of things, it can get quite overwhelming, can't it? Yeah. As a part of doing that driving, like most of the time I would put me eating last. So it'd be like pay my child support, pay my rent, pay for fuel for the Uber Black, the car's driving, and then eating come last. So far out for a couple of weeks I was stealing the minties out of the uber black car like 10 minties a day and i was just eating those for a couple weeks and then got to a point where i had a little bit of money like i could spend about 10 bucks a week so i'd buy just big tins of tuna and have one big tin of tuna a day and like five minties and that's how i lived for a while what was that like going from somebody who was earning quite a good wage when you were doing fifo and you were going to the gym all the time and you had a lot of extra money to do stuff and then fast forward a few years, eating minties and tuna <laughs> because that's all you can afford. 
what was going through your head? Like, what what was that like to deal with? Um, I hated myself. And it's something I'm still working through, but I, I absolutely hated myself. There wasn't self-pity, like, oh, poor me, I can't, I, I don't have money to eat. It was more a case of, dude, you're a piece of shit. Like, why the hell are you even here? What was your relationship like with your former partner and, and your child at that time? Um, It was strained. They were still living away. We always had a real argumentative relationship and obviously me still having the new partner, it still wasn't on solid ground where we could, or where I could contact her every day and know that it was going to be a positive response or where she could contact me and I was going to be positive. It was always like butting heads constantly. And to be honest, at that time, I don't think I was getting too much um, contact with my daughter, Yeah, which was a strain, especially when you're feeling like that. When you're malnourished as well, not, <laughs> yeah. not enough to afford to eat. So eventually it did all become too much. So tell me what happened next. I'd gone through a few weeks of just feeling like, Dude, you are borrowing money off people who can't afford to lend you money. You can't afford to eat. What's the point of you being here? You're you're a piece of shit. Like why the fuck are you gonna like burden everyone around you, put everyone else in a financial hole if you're not doing anything to get better? Like you're just staying in the same position, driving this Uber black car, eating shit and not progressing, so like What's the point? And so I had that question in my head for like a few solid weeks. And I just got down into this hole so low that one day I woke up and I was like, yeah, like why not put everyone out of their misery? Stop being such a burden. Fucking kill yourself. And so that escalated pretty quickly that morning. For some reason, felt so content with the notion of hanging myself that I went and got a rope out the cupboard, went out to the garage in the backyard and strung that puppy up. Were you living on your own at the time? No, I wasn't. I was living with I was living with my best friend at the time and his partner. He was still FIFO. He was away at work. She was at work. And so I just went outside and thought I'd end it. When you're planning to do something like that, is there any thought of the consequences of what happens after this? Who's going to find me? I know you said you thought that the people that you knew would be better off without you, but is there anything about any thought process of like your actual body and, and no. people coming in to find you? No, nah, man, and that's that honestly had never gone through my mind, and I'm not too sure it goes through anyone's mind when you're considering suicide. It's as if you think as soon as you're dead... Like the problems go away. But I'd never considered, fuck, someone's going to smell me rotting and they're going to come in and find me hanging. They're going to be traumatised for life. Someone's going to have to get me down off the rope. Um, the paramedics that have to deal with that as first responders and then everything from like going to the morgue and identifying me to like dressing me at the funeral... Nah, man, I never considered any of that. Settling my debts? Jesus. What a dick. You talked about getting the rope. Obviously, you know, you were 
a good physical worker, you're probably quite good at, at using ropes and yeah. <laughs> and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, part of my job, like I'm a scaffolder and a rigger, and part of a rigger's job is to tie knots. Like tie knots onto big pieces of steel so you can pull it around while it's hanging off a crane in the air. And for some reason, I didn't tie it right. I don't know if it was subconsciously I didn't want to die, but if I hadn't have tied it wrong, I wouldn't have given myself an opportunity to get back out of it. Because usually I would have tied it and not where it self-tightened. So when pressure goes on it, it would have crimped up. So if I jumped off that crate, it would have just like closed around my neck and applied pressure. But instead, I tied a knot that just stayed as it was. And so I gave myself the room to put my fingers in and wedge myself out eventually. What was it like making that decision to step off the crate? It felt freeing. Like there was no, if I look back now, there was no fear. And that's that's pretty powerful, but it's the wrong place to have no fear. It's It's pretty scary, to be honest, to know that most people who do commit it go through that. Do you remember how long you were standing on the crate before you decided to jump off? Honestly, I strung it up, got this little crate, put it there, literally got up, put my head through, and I was like, yeah, let's do it, and just stepped off. And then as soon as I stepped off, I realized, holy fuck, like, I want to live, I want to live, Jesus save me, please. Not literally, Jesus save me, because I'm not religious, but... <laughs> wow, that... That's a lot of uh, a lot of emotions to feel really quickly. So, what did come to your mind when you stepped off? It, it didn't work. Were you initially angry that it didn't work? Yeah, it was because I already thought I was a piece of shit, and now I was like, the emotion was like, dude, you couldn't even kill yourself. You couldn't <laughs> even tie a knot, which yeah. you're employed to you're, pretty much do. Yeah, you're such a piece of shit. Like they're being validated and letting you go, but. I think I was overcome because while I was hanging there, do you mind if I talk about this? Absolutely. Okay. While I was hanging there, like I remember people say your life flashes before your eyes and I thought that was shit. I thought that was horse shit until I was hanging. I have no idea how long I was hanging. And I was just I must have been just squirming and choking, like fighting fighting for breath, and I just remember seeing my daughter like holding her mum's hand. And it must have been like first day of school or something. But I remember her looking at her thinking, holy shit, she's not going to have a dad's hand to hold ever. And that scared the shit out of me. And made literally when I got off, I burst into tears because of that. Because in that moment, when I finally pulled myself like back and reached for the crate with my foot, got back on the crate and pulled my head back through, um, I realised... I've got something to live for and I need to start living to give her the best life possible instead of feeling sorry for myself, if that makes sense. Like it's the first time in my life I had even considered putting someone ahead of myself. And for someone that was as selfish as I am, that's a big step. So would you say that your daughter saved your life? Yeah, I'd say so. As cheesy and as corny as that is, yeah. 
like as much as I did not want her to begin with, didn't want her to be mine, she is the reason that I'm still living, she's probably the thing that gives me the most joy, still. <laughs> wow, that's um, that's remarkable, so talk me through the recovery after that, you've sort of realised, had this big realisation, you had that vision of, of your daughter, what was the physical recovery like first? Obviously, that's number one. You know, you were struggling to get out of the rope, but also intensely emotional. How did you go from being ready to, to kill yourself to stepping back and, and choosing to live again? I think I'm lucky that I had that that one moment where I'm like, I need to live for her. Obviously, like when I got down, I just collapsed on the ground, curled up on the ball, cried my eyes out. And I thought, what am I doing? Like, I could have just, like, killed her dad. I could have taken her dad away. And, like, having one of my best friends in high school, his mother died when he was young. And, like, she died giving birth. So I know the pain that he felt all through high school. And he was mocked through high school for not having no mum. Like, can you imagine the pain having to go through school high school being mocked knowing that your dad killed himself that's the shit I was thinking about did you tell people after it happened (laughs) no no I didn't tell anyone for about two years it's fucked up (laughs) I just didn't feel comfortable to be honest you decided you wanted to become a different person again and you wanted to live life so how did you make those changes well, I think it started with like changing my mentality. A lot of it I'm still working on at the moment, and that's for three to four years later. But I think it started with straight up just meditating so that I could control, well, not control, but sort of step back in my own mind and look at my thoughts objectively and just think, why are you even thinking that like you don't need to think that right now you should be thinking a little more positively because you know when you think that you spiral out of, out of control and you don't want to go back down that path so meditation was a big help for me and grounding going and chasing sunsets taking photos that's pretty much like where my recovery journey started and every time I'd meditated because I was using a guided app it had it had like remind you every time you meditated. Remember what your reason for this meditation is. Because it's hard. Meditation takes a lot of effort. And if you if you don't come ready, then you're going to think you're shit at it. And so my reason was so that I could be a better dad for her. You said chasing sunsets and taking photos. Was that a, a thing because the sun comes up and goes down every day? So it was always going to be there. Do you think that that was helpful that that was an ongoing thing yeah I set myself like a task of I had a little GoPro and I set myself a task of like getting one sunset or one sunrise every day for a year and just posting it on Instagram on my Instagram page to be honest I didn't understand the impact that it has until maybe a year ago where I started looking at the science of grounding understanding gratefulness and affirmations a little bit more and it just made me grateful for the beauty because obviously working FIFO, you're out in the desert, you don't give a shit about what any of that scenery looks like because it's shit. It's just barren and you're just 
working with like monolithic fucking structures and that's all you focus on is money alcohol gym and chasing sunsets just made me appreciate like all the colors in the sky or the clouds it's real different it was a real change of mindset for me and when you start to actively chase being positive or chase things to be grateful for you rewire your brain you you teach the neurons to fire in a different way so that next time you're in a bad situation it searches for something to be grateful for and that's really what that taught me that's a good lesson to learn (laughs) unfortunate way to learn it but looking back you said obviously it's still a work in progress as it probably always will be you know for a lot of people but what are the differences you see between the person that you were on that crate and the person you are now I couldn't accept myself for one I couldn't forgive myself for the person I was in New Zealand before I left with that addiction being unfaithful Um, I couldn't forgive myself for how I treated my daughter's mum Oh, geez, so much, man. Like, I I was selfish. I always put myself first, no matter what. And I always tried to manipulate people's perceptions of me to think that I was some innocent, outgoing, like, nice guy and that my partner was, like, the devil. I always had to manipulate the way people saw me instead of just being authentic and genuine and showing who I actually am. And that's, I think that's probably the biggest change for me because now I do everything out of love and I do every, everything I do is to either help someone or help a cause. And in return, you're validated by having love from the people that you help. And then you can just be yourself. You don't have to lie to someone about who you are for them to accept you. They just accept you because you know, you're giving them love, you're giving them help. Do you think it's harder for men... Um, especially FIFO workers, to be able to express those sorts of things? And do you think we're changing that in, in any way? Or do you think it's still a big issue out there, particularly for men? For men, it's especially the older generation. The older generation, yeah, it's I don't really see that happening. I don't see that paradigm shifting for them. But luckily for the like generation like ourselves, the millennials, I think we're, we're all coming becoming pretty aware and we're all opening our hearts a little bit and I guess not just putting the blinders on and accepting the notion that to be a man you have to be strong and you have to be stone-faced yeah I don't see I don't see the older generation changing too quickly because they've embedded that sort of pattern into their into their brain that being a man is being strong and not talking about emotion Mm, and they don't know any different yeah exactly what was your decision to start speaking out about it and opening up why did you think it was important to speak about your journey well the first time I actually shared it it was just to get it off my chest the first time I actually shared it on a blog post was literally the first time I'd ever written about it ever told anyone about it so I wrote that just to get it off my chest and I was like, oh my God, I know people are going to hate me because I try to do it. I know people are going to think I'm a pussy because I know I grew up with people and our notion was, man, if you kill yourself, you're a pussy. Yeah, you're pathetic. 
And so I knew people were going to hate me. I knew people were going to want to cut off, cut ties with me. But I just thought, like, fuck it. I've, I've been through it. I'm going to post it. And so I ended up calling my parents, calling my partner, calling my daughter's mum. Told them all. They all cried. And then I posted it. And when people started reaching out, saying, like, dude, that's amazing. Men don't, don't do that shit. They don't talk about this. Like, that's awesome. And then people also wanting help. That's where it all started. Have you thought about whether you're going to have the conversation with your daughter when she gets older and talk her through it? I'm going to have to. Like, bro, everything's going to be on YouTube. Everything's going to be exposed. We're living in a digital era, and she's going to see it before... I have an opportunity to tell her I know her that I, I know that and I know it's going to be hard for her but when the time's right we can talk about it and I'm, I'm ready for the ramifications like I'm ready for the consequences how old is your daughter now three she just turned three last week so hopefully that conversation is a, a little while off yet yeah you might I'm you hoping, might be a bit more prepared I'm hoping 10 years <laughs> Just tell me now, you know, you're on this journey of recovery. You've started your own podcast and and that sort of thing. Tell me what you're doing now and what your goals are for the future. Um, With the podcast, I literally interview people like yourself, people who have been through any sort of emotional struggle. And I really want to get down to the nuts and bolts of what they were feeling while they were going through that as well as having any tips, tools, or tactics that you, that they use to cope, process, or recover from what they struggled through. I think that's a really important part because not only do I want to facilitate the sharing of stories so that it encourages people to open up and share their own, but I also want to give people the ability to take little tidbits from each interview and implement a tip, tool, or tactic into their own life and then at some point along the road, they're going to find something that helps, something that sticks and that actually benefits their mental state. That's really nice, and it's kind of like you've gone full circle and been able to offer that help to people. Yeah, not really something I've thought about, to be honest. <laughs> I'm just doing it because I like it. If you could say one thing to someone like the person that you were on that crate, what would you tell them? Oh, gee, that's hard. I think I'd really have to make them aware, like what you're talking about before with like the ramifications and the ripple effect. It's not just you die and everything's over, problem solved for everyone. Like you've got to look at, are you an organ donor? Who's going to have to be there with the crew in the hospital to actually answer all those super personal questions so that your organs go to the right person? Who's going to have to ID your body? Who's going to have to dress you to put you in the casket? That's the missing link with suicide, is people don't understand that. And looking forward at the next five years, and then maybe you know even bigger, next 10 or 20 years, what, what would be some of your goals? My goals, I don't restrain myself when I set goals. So my goals are totally, I guess they would have been unrealistic like a year ago, but for now, my end goal is to speak about mental health, not just men's mental health, because I don't want to niche myself into just men. Like, I care about everyone. 
I love everyone, so I want to just speak about mental health in general, and that would be to speak at a TED Talk. Um, it would be to have high-level influencers like Aubrey Marcus or Lewis Howes on the podcast to share stories, and I know they both have like very deep emotional stories. My My main goal, and I've been speaking to my partner about this a lot lately, is to give my daughter and her mum a home. Like, that's my end goal. If I don't have my own house, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> like, I'm happy living in our one-by-one apartment in Coburn. I just, yeah, I just want them to be happy. Thank you so much, Lachlan, for opening up and sharing your story with my podcast today. It's been a pleasure. Cheers, brother. Thank you again for tuning in to this episode of Tom's Talk Time. If you liked it, make sure you share it around or tell a friend. There are other episodes available, so go through, have a look, tell me what you like, what you don't, and make sure you subscribe so you can get all of the episodes as soon as they become available. This podcast is about telling real stories from people who have lived real experiences, so I hope some of you could relate or some of you found it interesting or it made you think a different way. And I look forward to you joining me again next time. Bye.